you would this morning turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, begin reading in verse 20. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, betrayed took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this, is, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened to the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world." Wherefore, my brethren, when, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Last week we looked at the what I consider the first identifying mark of the New Testament church, and that being the ordinance that the Lord Jesus Christ himself entered into through the hands of John the Baptist and then uh, commanded the apostles to continue, and that's the ordinance of baptism. And that baptism, we find, is by full immersion. Uh, and the candidate who is to be baptized is to be one who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to be baptized by one who is duly ordained by the New Testament church, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to do so confessing their sins and professing their hope in Christ. And um, they're to do so under the doctrine or the teachings of the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus the second um, ordinance that Jesus commanded his church to maintain and keep till he come is that of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And as you read the New Testament, you will only really find it mentioned at, at, by Paul to the church at Corinth as far as in the epistles. Obviously, Jesus, you'll find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's alluded to in the Gospel of John. And obviously, we see where the Lord transitioned the same night he was betrayed from the Old Testament Passover to the New Testament communion service. And so the very final Passover that God looked upon and honored was the night that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus oversaw that Passover with the disciples and transitioned from that Passover directly in to the Lord's Supper and the New Testament church now has for 2,000 years maintained the principles that Christ himself uh, put on display there, the things he did uh, as he sat there with his disciples. And the New Testament church, the true New Testament church, has maintained that practice to the present hour. And if the Lord will bless us today, I would like to look at that ordinance as the second identifying mark of the New Testament church. So when an individual is looking for a New Testament church, the New Testament church in their community, if there happens to be one in their community, again, what do they look for? Well, hopefully they see the Word of God, and as they read the Word of God, they see that they're to be baptized by immersion, believing that the Lord Jesus Christ secured their salvation alone by his death on the tree. And then uh, the next mark they need to be looking for is, does the New Testament church that they're joining, does it maintain the Lord's Supper in the way that Jesus himself um, set it forth in his own life while he was here and how the apostle addresses it to the church of Corinth here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if a church doesn't do this, then obviously 
that New Testament church, if she still is one, a person ought to hold back joining that church. So as we look at the, the principle or the practice of the Lord's Supper, there are several things we'd like to observe. First of all, obviously as we do this, we are looking at a very symbolic supper. We're looking at something that should take our minds back to something that occurred literally about 2,000 years ago, and that is the sufferings and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, as often as we drink this cup, we're to do so uh, in remembrance of him. And Paul says we're to do this until he comes. Again, this is a, uh, an ordinance of the church that's to be maintained by believers until Jesus Christ comes at the last day. So we're to do so looking back to the death of Jesus, but then looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Then the question is, who is it that can participate in the Lord's Supper? That's a very important question as well. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper, there's some things that we're supposed to do individually as Paul addresses the church here at Corinth. Now, what Paul is addressing at the church at Corinth, I have never in my experience seen anything close to it. And in American culture, in most every Christian denominational church, when you come to the Lord's Supper, whether they practice it exactly like we do or not, there is usually a great deal of solemnity in, in every Christian organization I've ever beheld. And I've seen communions uh, in various uh, denominations, and they have a lot of sobriety and show a lot of dignity to this service, much like we do. That was not the case, though, in the city of Corinth. In the pagan culture in which Paul is living and, and addressing, it was very common in their religious meals when they would come together in their worship, whether they were Christian and had recently been converted or whether they uh, had converted to Judaism or whether they were still other, their pagan uh, thinking, they would come together and they would feast in a very ungodly way. They would become drunken in their religious services, and so it was very chaotic. Now, hopefully we never experienced that. I've never been in a chaotic uh, communion service. In fact, if it became chaotic, I would stop it. Uh, if need be, we would end the service on the spot until we could recollect ourselves and come back in the right way. Thankfully, I've never had to do that, but can you imagine what Paul is here addressing as, you start, as we started reading Paul says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not eat the Lord's Supper. Now, that's not, Paul's not saying, well, you're coming together for, and you're not communing. They were entering into the Lord's He says, but that's not the reason. That's not the goal when you're coming together. He says, you're still having the pagan goal of coming together for a drunken feast. And he says, and as you come together, he says, one takes before others his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And he says, so when you do come together, the wealthy among you, they are feasting, while the poor among you are watching and beholding and going without. Can you imagine such a, an occasion like that? Imagine even when we have our dinner on the grounds after service, if a wealthy family brought in and said, wait a minute, you can't partake of what I've brought. That's what was going on there. But they were connecting it with the Lord's Supper. And so Paul says, you're not coming together for the Lord's Supper. That's not your intent. That's not your goal. That's not your reason. And he says, so you've missed the mark uh, uh, completely. So he says, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He says, I praise you not. <laughs> he says, you're very wrong. He says, for I received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So he said, the things that I am going to tell you about the Lord's Supper, he says, I received directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he likewise prayed. He blessed it. And he let them know that this was the uh, cup of the New Testament, his blood. He says, this do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus made the, the supper very, very simple. When we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a very simple service. Much like baptism, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. It's not hard to grasp. It's not hard to comprehend. And it's not hard to execute. It's very, very simple. We come together. 
and this table before me will be set, and it will be set with two things. There will be bread, and there will be wine. And regarding the bread, it will be unleavened bread. And the reason it's unleavened bread dates all the way back to the Passover that God commanded Moses to execute and to follow as they were leaving the land of Israel. And as you'll recall, as they were going to the land of Egypt, as they were leaving the land of Egypt, as they were going to, God was going to come that night and God would look at individual houses. And if there was blood from a specific lamb applied a specific way upon specific homes, then the firstborn of those homes would be spared. He would pass over. And of course, the Egyptians did not have the specific blood applied in a specific way upon specific homes. And what happened to them? They were touched by God's hand of judgment and the firstborn in every home, both man and beast, was slain by God. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle addresses the church at Corinth because they had not handled church discipline the way they were supposed to. And Paul lets them know that they were to uh, remove the old leaven. And then he goes on, he says, for Christ, our Passover is sacrificed even for us. So when you and I assemble together in the Lord's Supper, we're doing so recognizing that Jesus is our Passover. Now, there are some things, again, that we are holding over from the Old Testament Passover service. We are using unleavened bread. God used that emblem on purpose. He knew it would be applicable to New Testament times, that it would be symbolic of really the same thing it was symbolic of in the Old Testament day. In the Old Testament day, it was symbolic of a pure lamb uh, that was being slain in behalf of that household. Now, obviously, we know that that was the blood of bulls and goats, and it didn't put away sin, but it was symbolic of an animal that was supposed to be without spot and without blemish, and symbolically, it was to uh, at least put back sin. Now, we know it never did cleanse sin. It never in, was intended to cleanse sin in the Old Testament day, but it was to picture it. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus approaching for his baptism, as he looked and saw him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. What's he talking about? He's pointing right back to the Passover uh, that uh, Moses instituted by the command of God the night before they left the land of Egypt. And so those Jewish people, they knew exactly what John was saying when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. They understood his meaning as he said that. They understood that this is God's Passover. Now, whether or not they embraced him as God's Passover, they knew exactly what John the Baptist was talking about. So in the New Testament day, we come together, we take bread, and it's unleavened bread. Why? Because leaven in the Bible, with with one exception, there's one time that leaven is not a picture of sin. Every other time in the Bible, Old or New Testament, leaven is a picture of sin. Leaven, yeast, when it's uh, placed in bread, obviously it causes it to swell and rise. Sin unchecked in our lives, it will swell, it will rise, and it will pass on to others as well. And the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the bread represents, was pure and holy. The Bible says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now he was totally human, but he did not have the nature of Adam in the sense of having a sin nature. He had a human nature, but he did not have Adam's fallen nature. So he was holy, he was harmless, he was undefiled, and he was separate from sinners, and he's made higher than the heavens. And so here the apostle makes that clear in Hebrews chapter 7, that as we look at the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, he was without spot, without blemish. Uh, Peter says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So he never did, never thought, never spoke the first thing that was wrong. And so we use the best picture that we have, bread, which is a picture of life. And Jesus is the bread of heaven, uh, a picture of the life that we have in him. And so what is a fitting emblem for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven, uh, the very substance of our life? The best thing that God could give us and that we maintain is that of unleavened bread. Now, there are some churches in this world that have uh, departed from using unleavened bread. Uh, they'll use any number of elements and say that that's satisfactory. That it's really, what we use isn't so important, but what we're thinking as we do so. Well, the Bible found it very important. 
The Jewish people considered it so important that as they came to the Passover of unleavened bread, that Orthodox Jews, even to this day, literally would take brushes and would sweep out every corner of their house so that there would be no leaven found in the home that could even accidentally get into the bread. That's how particular they understood God to be. Now, they took it too far. Uh, God wasn't that uh, concerned. I mean, in the sense that uh, a piece of leaven in the corner of the kitchen might accidentally make its way into the bread. But the Orthodox Jews were that concerned that they made sure their houses were completely swept so that no leaven could touch that dough as it was being prepared. So if they were that concerned in the Old Testament day, and that was an emblem that really fell short even how we use it in the New Testament day, how particular should we be? We should be as at least as particular. Now, we don't have to be legalistic in the sense that we make sure that whatever sister in our church sweeps her house totally so that there's no yeast found in it whatsoever. We're not that particular. But we do know that it is to be unleavened bread. And if a church is not using unleavened bread, she's falling short of the principles that Jesus himself instituted. The second thing you'll find on the table, of course, is wine, which pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wine, especially in Bible days, being one of the most pure drinks that could represent blood is what was used. It was not grape juice, it was blood. I mean, it was wine, excuse me. Uh, and it should maintain that way today. And whether we like it or whether we don't, that's the order of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that instituted the supper. He knows best what represents his body. And so he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is the uh, blood of the, uh, the New Testament in my blood, he says, which is shed for many. And so if Jesus used wine... What is wrong with us using wine? And obviously we use a much smaller amount than they even did at that table. They each had a cup. It was distributed. We use obviously the very small cups, which is going to impact us uh, very little. But it's very simple to maintain exactly the custom and the practice that Jesus himself uh, ordered and that the church has tried to maintain throughout history. So it's very simple. We take bread. And then a minister breaks the bread. Why? It's emblematic of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then separately we have blood. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood. That was the giving of his life. So his blood was separated from his body. That's what occurred at Calvary's cross. In the shedding of his blood or the giving of his life, we also see the tearing of his body. And through that, what does Isaiah say? By his stripes... We are healed. Now then, the New Testament orders us to use unleavened bread and wine. They're separate on the table, but then we take them individually. And what happens? They're joined back together in our body, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ being raised from the dead three days and three nights later. And so just like baptism, where we see a picture of death, burial and resurrection the same thing when we take the lord's supper we see the body the broken body of jesus the separated blood of jesus being joined back together in our body and what happens? the resurrection is pictured there and what occurs it, it's occurring in our body now obviously not literally so but symbolically so which is a wonderful picture or description of the life we have because of the resurrected christ so that's the, that's the practice. It's very simple. We come together around this table using those two elements, and that's all that's needful. It's very simple to understand, to comprehend, and to execute. And if a New Testament church falls short of using those things that Jesus commanded, then obviously that's not a New Testament church that you or I have business being members of. And so as I'm seeking a church... After baptism, I'm going to be seeking, how do they maintain the Lord's Supper? So then the question comes, well, who can partake? Who's allowed? Well, the door into the New Testament church is baptism. When we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, not only are we receiving the answer of a good conscience toward God, not only are we justifying God, not only are we... Um, 
receiving the answer of a good conscience toward God, fulfilling all righteousness, we're also joining ourselves to a local body of believers. When somebody comes down to join the church and the church votes to receive them, what we're doing is we're voting to receive them pending their baptism. They're not a member in full until they're baptized. Now the church has authorized through receiving them, me to baptize them, knowing that once they're baptized, they're now officially a member of this local body. And so those are the individuals that have the right to commune in the Lord's house are baptized members of the New Testament church. Now there are some in this world that believe that communion should be fully open to any and all, meaning we should not restrict it to anybody. Whether they've been baptized, not baptized. Whether they've been baptized in another order or not. That it shouldn't matter. Uh, that if they love the Lord and want to have fellowship with the Lord, they ought to be allowed to come into the Lord's house and take the Lord's Supper. Now, I do believe that anybody who wants to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, believe on Him and fellowship Him ought to come in and worship together with us. But before they should sit at this table... There's something they must do, and that is be baptized by an authorized minister of the gospel, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing that they're sinners, and professing their hope in Him. And without that, they should never be allowed uh, to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's not arrogant. It's not being exclusive. It's following the command of the Word of God. When the Lord Jesus Himself commanded the apostles to go into the city... To prepare, or when they asked the question, where should we prepare the Passover? Jesus gave them a very specific answer. He says, you go into the city. He says, you're going to find a man with a pitcher. And when you find that man, you're to go with him. And he's going to show you a large upper room furnished. They, he says, there, make ready the Passover. Now, as you will carefully read the four gospel accounts, I believe there were 12 individuals in the first Lord's Supper. Jesus and 11 of the apostles. Now some think that Judas Iscariot was there. But if you carefully read all four accounts, uh, I do not believe that Judas was present there. Now you could read the gospel accounts and maybe come to a different conclusion than I do. And we won't part company over that. But I believe there were 12 sitting at that table, Jesus and the 11. You don't find the goodman of the house. You don't find the owner of the house. Uh, they were excluded from the Lord's Supper. They were not invited in. Now my supposition is this, that man that had the large upper room furnished and ready was ready to invite his own guest to take the Passover himself. That would only make sense that this man prepared that room because it was the time of the Passover. Uh, however, obviously Jesus had need of it just like he needed the use of that ass as he came into the city and he didn't ask permission. He just let him know that the Lord had need and the Lord used. Just like when the Lord sent the devils into those swine, uh, the Lord didn't ask the owner of those swine permission whether or not he could uh, cast the demons into those swine. He just did so. And those swine, which had no business in Judea anyway, uh, they cast themselves, of course, to the sea and ground. Jesus didn't ask permission uh, to do the things that he desired to do. And Jesus excluded the very man that owned the house that had prepared the room for his own Passover supposedly, from the Lord's Supper. So if that man who provided the place wherein the first communion was held was not even himself allowed to be there because at this time at least he's not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that teaches me that it is right, it's lawful, it's biblical to ensure that those that partake of the Lord's Supper are baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we do not believe in open communion here at Little Union Church. It's not open to just anybody. Now, there's two ways to look at how we restrict communion. There's what's called closed communion, which means closed to any except baptized members of a particular local body. In other words, only members of Little Union Church could take communion here at Little Union Church. And then there are those that believe in close communion, meaning if we have close ties and fellowship and we are in, uh, in uh, fellowship in practice and doctrine with another church of like faith and order, if we would receive their baptisms, 
by receiving their members if they were to join here, then we would allow them into our communion service. That's what old Baptists practice. Now, I'm going to say that my preference, personally, <laughs> is closed communion. And the reason I say it's my prayer is when we come together here, my favorite communion at Little Union is in January. Uh, when it's separate from a meeting and it's just our, and the reason is, and it's not because it's biblical. It's because I know you better than I know any other church. And when we come together for this meal, there's an intimacy involved not only with the Lord, but with one another. Now, in July, we have a close communion because we connect it with an annual meeting and we have ministers here and their families and other folks are invited. And I'm fine with that. The scripture allows for it. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul was, as far as we can consider, an, a, a member of the church at Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, it was the church at Antioch where Paul went forward preaching the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 13, and the, the, the language is very interesting. It says, now there were in the church that was Antioch, that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers, and Saul is going to be the one, one of the ones named. Notice again the language, there were in the church. That means they were members of that body. A few weeks ago, I was at El Bethel Church. I was in the congregation, obviously, but I was not in El Bethel Church in the sense that I was a member of El Bethel Church. We have good fellowship, and I thank God for the fellowship that we have with her and other bodies as well. But I was at El Bethel. I was not in El Bethel. Paul, though, was in the church at Antioch. He was a member here. And as you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, when Paul ends his journey, where does he go to? He comes back to the church at Antioch. And as Paul will make his further journeys after that, you'll find that Antioch is where his membership must have always been. But as you turn to Acts chapter 20, as Paul is taking his final journey, which is going to lead him to Jerusalem and from there to Rome and there to prison and ultimately to death, you're going to find that he comes to a place called Troas. And as he's there in Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, the disciples assembled together for the purpose of breaking bread. Now, the Bible, when it uses that term, breaking bread, typically it means the Lord's Supper. Now, as far as we can tell, the Apostle Paul joined together with them in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, you can back up in the book of Acts and find in Acts chapter 18 and 19 that the Apostle had spent several years away from his home church at Antioch. He's at Ephesus for about two years. And so, do you think that the Apostle Paul, in all that time that he's away from his home church, never engaged in the Lord's Supper, never participated in the Lord's Supper? I think not. In Acts chapter 20, the illusion is very clear that the Apostle Paul, there at the church of Troas, he uh, ate with them in the Lord's Supper. So the Apostle Paul, who was not a member at Troas, was allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper, being a baptized believer, uh, then I believe biblically the right custom is close communion, meaning allowing those of same faith and order uh, that have been baptized to come together with us in the Lord's Supper. Some have concern with that and say, well, but if that occurs, we don't know in our local body whether that person is living a godly life or not. That's a valid concern, and I've had it before. A number of years ago, we were gathered here on a Saturday during our July meeting, and there was an individual that let me know he would be back that night for the Lord's Supper. I knew some things about his past. I wasn't certain whether he was still a member of a New Testament church or whether or not he'd been excluded. I wasn't certain about his moral lifestyle at that present time, even if he had membership. And so between uh, dinner and the Lord's Supper that night, I got on the telephone and called a minister several states away, and I inquired about him. And I found that, yes, he had been out of order morally and been dealt with by the church, but confessed his wrong, repented, and had been restored. And so because I had knowledge myself of his past but wasn't certain about his present, I inquired about it because if it was so that he was still outside the Lord's house, I was going to have to let him know that he would not be allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper here in our congregation. Thankfully, as it turned out, uh, he had done what he needed to do and had himself in the right situation. So 
it is the position of the word of God that it's baptized believers only that are to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now then, when I say baptized believers, Paul is going to define for us what a baptized believer is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice what he says in verse 28. But let a man examine himself. I want to stop with that. Let a man examine himself. For those who think that closed communion, meaning only members of a particular body can commune together because only that church could really know if that person is living a moral life or not. If you'll notice, Paul puts the pressure on the individual, not on the church. He says, let a man examine himself. Paul didn't say to the church at Corinth, the church has a responsibility of examining everybody before they come in to make sure they're alive. You understand that there could be one of our members that comes in, takes the Lord's Supper, and may be guilty of fornication, adultery, or theft, or any number of things, but it's private and none of us know about it. God is not going to hold us accountable for something that we have absolutely no knowledge about. That person is going to be held accountable uh, for what they're doing. However, if we knowingly allow that to go on and knowingly then bring them into the Lord's Supper, then the judgment uh, of God would fall upon the New Testament church. But here the apostle makes it clear that a man is to examine himself, and after he examines himself, let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So it's your responsibility to examine your life. It's my responsibility to examine my life and the purpose for which I'm assembling at the time of our communion. Verse 29, he says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now obviously, all of us, I think, are aware that none of us are worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all fall short. I, I trust we understand that. When Paul here says that, we're not to eat or drink unworthily. That means that we are to be in contemplation and consideration of what it is that we're doing. And hopefully our life mirrors as best possible the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we all fall short. We recognize that. We understand that. But that we are making every attempt through the help and grace and strength of God to live a moral life as we come together for this meal. But even beyond that, that's not really what Paul is primarily addressing. What he's primarily addressing is that we come together worthily discerning, understanding the Lord's body. Paul has used this word discern before when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that before a man is born of the Spirit of God, he cannot discern spiritual things. That's clearly understood, I think. A natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Now Paul says, for you and I, to enter into the Lord's Supper worthily, we're to do so discerning or understanding the Lord's body. So how is it that we come together discerning or understanding the Lord's body? As we take the bread, we're to understand that his body was broken for us. And as we take the wine, the emblem of his blood, we're to understand, we're to discern that his blood was shed, his life was given to deliver us from our sins. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to uh, Hebrews, the 10th chapter. In Hebrews chapter 10, notice what Paul says are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 5 of Hebrews 10, he says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, speaking of Christ, he, Jesus saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So Paul tells me in 1 Corinthians 11 that I am to discern the Lord's body. Now here in Hebrews chapter 10, he tells the Hebrew children that the Lord Jesus, when he came into this world, here's what he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared. What does Jesus mean by this statement? Well, it means primarily that everything that was happening under the Old Testament, the sacrifices and the offerings, God didn't want that any longer. Uh, it was time for the ultimate sacrifice. It was time for that which was typified in the Old Testament offering to be done in fulfillment by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he said, sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not. In other words, it's time to put an end to animal sacrifice. He says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. 
Obviously, God prepared a body for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he prepared Jesus for that body, and the Lord Jesus came into this world. But for what purpose? He lets us know in verse 10, he says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And now he tells us in verse 10 why it is that Christ was given a body. He says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That means for all time. Uh, the Old Testament priest, how often did he go in on the Day of Atonement? That was an annual occurrence. It was repeated annually for hundreds of years. But here the, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says sacrifice and offerings, thou wouldest not. Why? Because God was through with that. That was coming to an end. It would not be observed by God, honored by God, blessed by God anymore. So he says, you've prepared me a body, and the purpose of this body is to sanctify uh, the children of God, he says, once for all, meaning once for all time. He goes on to say, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He says, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expect until his enemies be made his footstool. Then he says, for by one offering, one offering of what? The offering of his body for all time. He says, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Uh, the sanctified here are those that were elected by God before the world was ever created. So the Lord Jesus Christ was given a body to come into this world. He, in that body, offered himself to God. Again, he says the offering of this body was once for all, meaning once for all time. And then he lets us know for whom that body was offered. He says, uh, once again, for by one offering he had perfected, that means completed, forever, them that are sanctified. Those that God set aside before the world ever began and gave the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus in his body, made an offering to God once for all, and in so doing, he perfected forever them that are sanctified. So when you and I come together in the Lord's Supper as baptized members of the Lord's house, we're to discern, understand the Lord's body. So what am I understanding? I'm understanding that God prepared a body for him. God gave him that body to make that body an offering for sin to God. And that in that one-time offering for all time, Jesus sanctified us forever. He says, for by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul, or excuse me, Peter, Peter says it this way. He says of Jesus in verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Notice verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray but are now returning to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So here the apostle Peter is going to let us know more about the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again he says, who did no sin Looking at the humanity of Christ. Now obviously as deity, the Son of God, there was absolutely no way that he could sin. But I also believe in the impeccability of the humanity of Christ. Meaning that even in his humanity, he could not sin. He could never have fallen to the temptations of Satan. Uh, when Satan tempted him 40 days there in the wilderness and afterwards uh, took him uh, those three times and uh, put him to the test. There was absolutely no chance whatsoever that Jesus was going to fail. And what I find interesting in that experience of Satan tempting the Lord Jesus Christ, you find Jesus 40 days afterward, he's a hungered boy because he hadn't eaten or drinking, uh, uh, at least eaten, we know, for 40 days. For 40 days this man uh, has been without food. And in the Bible the number 40 is the number of judgment, it's the number of trial, it's the number of testing. Uh, think about in the Old Testament days of Noah. How many days did it rain upon the earth? For 40 days and 40 nights it rained upon the earth. You'll find the number 40 a number of times throughout the Word of God. It's always connected with trial, testing, or judgment. 
The Lord Jesus Christ will go 40 days without food. Here he is, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, at his very weakest in his humanity. And Satan comes against him, and three times as Satan attacks him, what does he do? Three times he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy and gives Satan the word of God to repel Satan's attacks against him. The thing that you and I need when Satan comes against us is the knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, Jesus just used the Word of God and the Word of God uh, caused him to flee. But take Adam. Adam was at his prime. Adam was at his strongest. Adam at that point had not fallen. He was a perfect specimen of humanity. And here comes Satan in the garden and Eve was beguiled and she gave to her husband and he did eat. Uh, Satan comes and with one temptation uh, we find that Adam, he falls. Adam at his strongest, he falls and, and yields to the temptation. Christ at his weakest though uh, upholds uh, the principles of morality and righteousness and does not fall uh, to the attacks of Satan. He could not sin and he did not sin. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Just go through the Bible sometime in the New Testament gospel accounts of just the things that were said to Jesus in a negative way. The questions that were thrown at him to question his deity and even his morality. Go through all of that. It's a good study to just see how Jesus handled those who came against him. Even in his judgment before his death, because they could find no viable witnesses against him because he had done no wrong, they paid false witnesses. They bought people, bribed people to lie against the Lord Jesus. Now, if somebody accused me of something that I was guilty of, I'm sure in my human nature I would still try to acquit myself, justify myself, excuse myself. I know that if I was accused of something unjustly, especially something concerning legality, I mean, if all of a sudden uh, the sheriff of Hillsborough County came in and put handcuffs on me for murder, I'm going to hire an attorney and I'm going with every breath that I have, pronounce my innocence. Because <laughs> I haven't killed anybody. Now, there are some things they could probably get me on. If they want to get me for speeding and uh, other uh Laws like that, they could get me and I could say, well, I have excuses for it, but that's all they are is excuses. There's laws I've broken and they could justify a charge against me, but not murder. They couldn't get me for that. They can't get me for burglary, not justly anyway. I mean, they might have some false witnesses that have been paid, but notice Jesus. When all that was said, he knew those liars. He knew who they were. He knew the things they were saying were false. He knew they had been paid. He knew how much they had been paid. He knew everything about them. And yet, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. That means when they threw those accusations in his teeth, you know what he did? The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was a lamb that went to the slaughter. He was dumb. So he opened not his mouth. In other words, he just kept his mouth closed. It's amazing how far a person can get ahead when they just don't speak. <laughs> uh, Jesus is a wonderful example of that. Of you know, The Bible lets us know in the book of James, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Oftentimes, we're slow to hear, and we're swift to speak, and we're swift to wrath. That was not the Lord Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now, if somebody came against me unjustly, I might even uh, bring a threat against them. Uh, but Jesus, when he was threatened, he threatened not. Or when he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do? He committed himself to him that judges righteously. He gave us a beautiful picture. Now that doesn't mean that you and I have no right if we're unjustly condemned in this world to hire an attorney to defend ourselves. That's not what uh, Peter is here saying. But Peter is letting us know that here is the Son of God who when he was suffering, he didn't threaten. Here's what he did. 
He says, Father, I trust you because you're uh, the supreme judge of all the earth. You know the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know who I am. You know what I am. And so Jesus just committed himself to the one that judges righteously. There's been times that I have been accused by things, by people in the house of God, that I knew were not right. And there's been times I've tried to defend myself, and all that did was worsen it. And there's been other times that I did like the Lord Jesus Christ. I just kept my mouth quiet, and I knew that God would justify me. And you know what? Every time that I've waited on the Lord to justify me, it's always worked out. Every single time without fail. And every single time that I've tried to justify myself and I've spoken in my own defense, it usually falls apart. Because people believe what they want to believe. But after a while, they have to uh, trust and believe what they see. In the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, he made a beautiful statement. He says, wisdom, capital W, that's him. Wisdom is justified of her children. In other words, by his followers or by our works, we'll be justified. Or we'll be condemned. Anyway, so here it says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Here's what he did. He just committed himself to God because God judges righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Peter is very specific here. Who... His own self, not his own self and your prayers, his own self and you being baptized, his own self and you believing, his own self and you going to church, his own self and you trying to live an upright moral life. That's not what it says. Who his own self bear our sins, where? In his own body. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. So Paul says there was an exchange, if you will, on Calvary's cross. The Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute took our sins upon him who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Again, Peter's extremely specific about it. Paul lets us know that as Jesus does that, there's a transaction that takes place. There's a transfer that takes place. Uh, Jesus takes our wickedness and takes it upon our, himself, and then he takes his righteousness and gives it to you. That's what occurred in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the tree, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep going astray, and that was all of us but are now returning to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And you know how you return to him? Because he's called. <laughs> and in his call you answered. And that wasn't necessarily the gospel call. <laughs> it's the effectual call in the new birth. He calls wayward sheep. And every wayward sheep, when called by the voice of the Son of God, they live and they return to the shepherd and the bishop of their souls. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So in Hebrews 10, again it says... Sacrifices and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And that body was offered. Why? For all time. And then he lets us know that Jesus forever perfected them that are sanctified by that one offering. So God prepared a body. Jesus offered that body. And that body being offered was sufficient for all time. And that body being offered perfected forever them that are sanctified. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ bare our sins in his own body on the tree. And when he bore our sins, he gave us his righteousness. And now our stripes are healed. That is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture is teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it says that we're to discern the Lord's body. So if we come together around the Lord's Supper and the minister is preaching something like this, uh, Jesus made salvation a possibility. 
And all that's necessary in order for you to see heaven and immortal glory when you leave this world is to believe on His name, have faith in Him, uh, be baptized in His name, uh, to follow Him in uh, coming to the house of God. That is not discerning the Lord's body. That's not understanding what occurred in the transaction on the cross. What occurred in the transaction on the cross is you and I were perfected forever. Uh, that means that we were made complete in Him by the body of the Lord Jesus Christ when He bore in that body our sins on the tree. And so when you and I come to the Lord's table, that's what we're to be considering and that's what we're to understand. And if a New Testament church that claims to be a New Testament church is teaching anything other than the completed, successful, saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross then that's a, a table you don't need to come to. But if that church is teaching that in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins were remitted forever, and that you that stood condemned were now justified in the sight of God at Calvary and fully redeemed, then that's a table that I'll sit at. That's a table I'll eat at. Why? Because they're discerning correctly the Lord's body. So the elements are simple. It's bread and it's wine. It's unleavened bread to picture the purity of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wine to picture the purity of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, We were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold or the vain traditions received uh, from our fathers. He says, But with the precious blood of Christ. So we have on the table at the Lord's Supper unleavened bread to picture a man who did no sin and to see blood that coursed through his veins that was pure blood. It was holy. Again, we were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, who as a lamb without spot and without blemish. That means an individual who was holy. Who's to partake? Those that have been baptized under the principles of the reality that the Son of God actually redeemed his people when he died at Calvary's cross. Anything short of that is not the gospel. Anything short of that, then it's insufficient. So the people that are to partake of this meal are those who have been baptized under the understanding that their home in heaven is completely and totally dependent on Jesus bearing our sins in his own body on the tree and thereby perfecting forever them that are sanctified in the offering of the body that he offered once for all in the body that God prepared for him. That's the body that you and I are to discern when we come together in the Lord's house at the Lord's table to commemorate the sufferings and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ till he come again. Those are the simple practices and teachings that surround uh, the New Testament custom and practice of observing the Lord's Supper. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It's not complex in the least. For some, it's hard to believe. For some, they will not accept it. And that's to their own, uh, that's to their own shame and really to their own damage and hurt. But thank God, you and I have been blessed to see by the revelation of God and through the preaching of the gospel, the successful work of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross that delivered us forever from our sins. And now we come together from time to time and we see individuals baptized, professing that Jesus uh, purified them before God once for all in His death, His burial and His resurrection. And then when we come together in the Lord's house at the Lord's table, we're once again giving honor to Jesus and to God His Father by partaking of this table, honoring Him, by typifying and showing that we understand that that bread represents a body that was broken for you and I and by his stripes were healed and his blood was shed that through his death we would have eternal life. May God bless you as I pray.